you guys are here. Welcome to St. James. A um, couple of announcements. Uh, one is the usual announcement about Bible study. If you'd like to participate in adult Bible study, we're talking, we're, this morning we're going to walk through uh, Galatians 5 text about the uh, fruit of the Spirit. And so if you want to participate in that, uh, shoot me a text. And um, if you aren't already on the, the invitation list, and I will send you a link to that Zoom invitation. Uh, uh, that Zoom, we do the Bible studies on Zoom. Speaking of Zoom, we are going to have uh, next Sunday at noon, uh, we're going to have a, um, a quick uh, voters meeting uh, about hiring a new office manager. And we need to meet at noon to talk. This is for, if you're looking at the live stream, this is for St. James members. 
uh, we need to meet at noon to approve the pay package for the new office manager. Some of you know that we've been without an office manager for about three, four months now. So there's really no good way to do that except on Zoom for all of us to get together. And if you've never used Zoom before, um, it's not that difficult to use. I can walk you through it. But if you want to participate in that voters meeting, I need you to text me your um, email address. And um, let me make this real clear. If you're already on the Bible study list, you still need to text me that so that I know that you want to be on the congregational meeting list. And then I will send you an invitation. Zoom is really easy. In the invitation, there'll be a link. You just click on the link and it pops up. But that'll happen next Sunday at um, noon. So third service gets over around 11.15. We give uh, them about a half hour, 45 minutes to get home. And then uh, we'll have that meeting. And uh, we'll uh, vote out loud and we'll try and hopefully it'll work. It'll be a little bit weird. Zoom's always weird. If you've used Zoom for work or anything like that, so our school, it's super awkward. Uh, but we'll, we'll make it work. It's the best thing we can do now instead of cramming all of us in here into the sanctuary at one time. Okay, uh, that's all I've got as far as announcements are concerned. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of your people today. We confess that we have worshipped too many other gods. We have devoted ourselves to all too many different values. Turn our hearts to You again. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of Your people today. We confess that we have visited all too many sanctuaries. We have tried to find the sources of life in all too many other places. Turn our hearts to You again. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be the God of Your people today. We turn to You and to You alone to be our God our only God. Forgive our sins. Give us spiritual integrity. Give us wholeness and holiness. Answer us in the name of Christ, for He has promised to intercede for us. It is in Him that we pray in the fellowship of His body. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter. Glory to You, O Lord. Now when Jesus heard about the death of John the Baptist, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. 
And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Epistle reading for this morning is from Romans 8, and we're going to read um, the, first two, uh, the first two verses, or the last two verses from last week's epistle reading, and I really should have added verse 15 of chapter 8 too. If you don't mind, I'm going to read verse 15 and then, um, then verse 16. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so now we're getting to where Paul has been headed since the beginning of Romans chapter 5. Paul's been telling the whole story of the creation of the world, beginning at Romans 5 uh, with uh, Adam and the fall into sin. And he's headed towards this target here, a new creation. And it's been, it's, it, the path has been, it's never simple for Paul, and it's often confusing. And we often, there's often lots of stuff to get sidetracked along the way. But, but you want to keep your eyes on the goal, which is we're going to get to it this week. So we have uh, friends that invited us a few weeks ago, uh, a couple months ago, to go down to uh, Valmire to Salt Lick Point Trail. I don't know if anybody's ever been there, uh, but it's at these old salt mines on the bluffs at Valmire, and it's a hike, and it, it's, not a, it's not a super serious hike like my kids went on it, but it's not like the bike trails around here either. It's not smooth going. And so we met them down there, and we, we started this trail, and the first quarter mile is just about straight uphill, like on this, uh, this trail. And, you know, frequently there's like uh, logs put down for, for your footing. So, it's, you know, you're kind of winded uh, when you get to the top there. And then it's, it's, the, the, it's all in the middle of woods. You can't really see where you're at or where you're going. It's pretty thick woods. And at points, the trail grows in real close, so there's just brush up against your shoulders, and you got to kind of push your way through there. But the payout is uh, this remarkable vista. Like, you, you come out onto this rock outcropping, and it's, it's raw. There's no, like, fence or, you know, gates there or signs warning you or anything. But you're about 150 feet above the river valley, and, and you can see St. Louis off in the distance. It's about 20 miles away. And you can see this, the, the Mississippi River as it goes through this beautiful valley, and you can see the hills of Missouri off in the distance, too. And that's kind of where we've been headed with Paul. And the temptation is to get lost and to not know where you're at and to get sidetracked. And we love to do, well, not all of us, but some of us love to do this. You know, we're going to stop and we're going to talk about justification and sanctification. We're going to talk about what does the Torah mean and how do Christians live in relationship to the law? and What does the Holy Spirit have to do with that? And what's about, what about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Related to that, the relationship between Jewish Christians in Paul's day and Gentile Christians, how are they going to relate? And what we don't want to do is miss the target, like to get bogged down in stuff that's there to get us to this beautiful vista, which we're going to get to today. There's three things I want to say about this vista. Paul calls it hope. He calls it hope. And he's already told us back in chapter, way back in the beginning, in chapter 5, verse 2, that this is where we're headed. He said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And now here in Romans 8, we get to the hope, keyword today, of the glory, keyword today, of God. And so I'm going to give you three things about this, um, this hope of the glory of God. First of all, uh, the pathway to glory, which is suffering. The reality of glory, 
which is new creation. And then third, the anticipation of glory, which Paul calls hope here. So let's talk about the pathway to glory, the reality of glory, and the anticipation of glory. So we can first talk about the pathway to glory, which um, is suffering. There's hills to climb. There's brush to be cleared. Uh, There's work to be done. He describes this in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is from last week. The Spirit bears witness that we are not slaves. We are not debtors. We are the sons and daughters of the King. And if children, that means that we're heirs. Remember from last week, that means we own the whole thing. All of creation belongs to us. We are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I blew over this last week. It's a, it's, it's a transition point for Paul. He's going to get into it in, the, in our reading for today and in the readings that are coming up. Suffering. We are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You are an, a child of God. You are an heir of all creation, provided, he says, that you suffer with Christ. Now, by itself, it seems sort of random. So why bring up suffering right now? And maybe even, you know, maybe even, which is, might be worse than random, it's, it's kind of cruel. It's almost like, hey, you can get glory, but you got to pay the price first. You got to suffer first. And let me just say, that's not what Paul is saying. But, but he is saying this. He is saying that if you are connected to Jesus, if you've been united to Jesus, you are going to suffer. Let me give you, just real quick if I can, I'm going to try and hustle this up here. Uh, three things, that, three things that, that that looks like. I've talked about suffering before. I don't want to get into it too deep because it's not really the main point of the text here. Um, he's going to come back to it next week as well. And so we can, put off, we can put it off a little bit to next week. But first of all, if you're connected to Jesus, you're going to suffer because people who act like Jesus suffer. That's the way it works. If you look like Jesus, you're going to suffer. Jesus already warned us about this back in John chapter 15, where he says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. We, Christians, lots of times, like we don't like this notion. We don't like people to dislike us. And yet, it's just a part of the game. If you live your life in a Christ-centered way, you are going to be weird and marginalized. If you love people who don't love you, if you accept and welcome people who don't accept and welcome you, if you respond to the problems of the world, whatever those problems are, not by like, okay, I need to get some money and be financially secure, or I'm cool, I got a nice house, or my family's all healthy. If, if, you, don't, if you respond to the problems of the world, not with that sort of mindset, but with the mindset of self-sacrifice, I'm going to give myself up for others. You are going to be marginalized. Christians have never been culturally accepted. When, when Christians act like Christians, they've never been culturally accepted. They've always been marginalized. They've always been counterculture. It's just a part of the deal. All right, second thing, though. Part of this countercultural thing, part of acting and looking like Jesus means, like I said, loving people who don't love you. Um, welcoming people who don't welcome you. Well, in our tolerant culture, why wouldn't that be accepted? And, and the reason why is, is because people who forgive willingly embrace pain. People who forgive other people willingly embrace pain. Look, here's a base definition for forgiveness. You should remember this. 
Forgiveness is taking upon yourself the pain that the person who hurt you rightly should be feeling. That's what forgiveness is. Taking upon yourself the pain that the person who hurt you should be feeling. I was listening to this. Okay, so I'm a nerd. I was listening to this baseball podcast, this interview with Rod Carew. And so if you, if you were like paying attention to baseball in the 1970s or early 80s, you would know who Rod Carew is. Rod Carew, uh, you know, famous baseball. He's a Hall of Famer. Um, he's a believer in Jesus. He's a lover of Jesus. He was working his way through the minor leagues. And when he was in a southern city, he was in this uh, playing. He, he, in his, he just wrote a book recently. And he doesn't tell the people's names. But he was in the city. And there were three guys who lived in the city who gave him all kinds of grief. Uh, that's kind of a mild way to say it because Rod's, uh, Rod Carew's black. Uh, they came and like, horribly abused him verbally at all these games. Uh, they called him the N-word. They said all kinds of horrible things about him and his family. Uh, of course, the whole go home thing, go home N-word. Uh, that was a big deal. At the end of the season, they met him in the parking lot and said, hey, you earned our respect. Like, we let you have it all season long, and you didn't, like, you didn't look at us or, like, say anything back to us at all. We want to shake your hand. And he was really ticked off at them, you know? It's like, this is not how this works. You don't get to, like, for 160 days, mistreat me and then come and shake my hand. But he said, okay. And he stuck out his hand and shook his hand. Now, in the podcast, the host of the podcast, who's not a believer, said... So he said, I, I, I feel like I don't have a right to say this to you because I'm white and you're black. But it feels like that was kind of the wrong move. Like, that was kind of like, all that injustice you received is kind of like you're just saying it's okay. One of Rod Carew's points is, that's what forgiveness is. It's not saying that injustice is not injustice. But it's taking the pain of that and carrying it when the other person should be carrying it. Forgiveness always costs us. Now listen, this is, what, this is one of the things that it means to suffer in Christ. If we live a life of forgiveness, we're going to suffer because forgiving people is suffering. It means taking on suffering that the other person deserves. Being like Jesus means suffering. If being like Jesus, I'll say it again, if being like Jesus means freely offering forgiveness, that means that you're willing to take upon suffering that you don't deserve because that's what Jesus did. Third thing, it's a little bit comforting to me, a lot comforting to me, actually, is suffering with Jesus is not suffering just because of Jesus or suffering uh, for Jesus, you know, on behalf of him. It's suffering with Jesus. That's the language that Paul uses in these two verses. If you suffer with Christ. The reason why is because Jesus suffers. The whole forgiveness thing, he's the paradigm for that. He, he's, he's, the, like, he's the framework for which we understand our own uh, command to forgive each other is that Jesus willingly took upon himself the pain and the torment of sins that he didn't deserve on the cross for us. And God has designed, this is the way God has designed glory to work. God will fix everything in the end. But he doesn't just snap his fingers and act like injustice is an injustice. He has to pay for the injustice. He has to go through the torment of carrying that injustice on himself. But that's the pathway to glory. And so let me make this point real quick. Lots of times you and I, we think of suffering, uh, you know, we think of suffering, whatever it is, you know, you, you, you're running late for uh, an appointment or you're super sick or you lost a loved one tragically, anything in between. We think of suffering as like, 
oh, I got to get out from this. And of course, that's really appropriate. Nobody wants to suffer, and you shouldn't want to suffer, right? But lots of times we think of it randomly. Now, and I've said a lot about this, and I don't want to go into it too much, but you basically have two choices. Okay, you're going to suffer, right? Sometimes we don't like God because we're like, I can't believe in a God who would let bad things happen to people. If he's such a great God, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and let it go? Okay, I don't have answers for that, but what I can say is that you could, if you believe in God or you don't believe in God, you're going to suffer. In, in other words, like you can choose not to believe in God because he's a God that somehow works suffering into his scheme of our lives. But it does, it, you can choose not to believe in him, but it's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to help you. You're still going to suffer. So when you get to this point, I'm talking to Christians now, when you get to this point where you're suffering, let me encourage you not to think of it as random, as like, oh God, where are you at in this? Which, by the way, that's not an inappropriate prayer. You should pray that. But at the end of the day, what I want you to hold on to is this reality that God uses suffering to bring about glory. There is, we don't frequently know the purpose. You know, why does somebody's child die? Why your diagnosis? Why is it that your basement always leaks? We don't know the answers to these questions. But we do know that God, in his sovereign, gracious, loving will, is working those things. He's completely in charge of those things, and he's working them for glory. So let me encourage you to see suffering not so much as like random attacks of the universe or of God upon your well-being and peace of mind, but I want you to see them as portals to glory, all right? Why do you, let me give you some examples real quick here. Why do you take on that huge landscaping job in your yard? You know it's going to break your back. You know it's going to require some serious maintenance long-term once it's finished. You don't do it because you're like, oh, so you don't avoid doing it because you're like, I don't want to do that because it's going to be hard work. You do it because the hard work is going to lead to the nice-looking yard. That's the way that we should think of pain and suffering. Now, I know in that case you know the reason because you, you yourself are planning it, but trust a sovereign God who plans things that are way more complicated and way more important than your landscaping. This is why you work out too, right? You don't work out because you just like feeling pain unless you're just some sort of sicko, which some of you are. You work out because there's glory at the end of that. There's like good health and your body looks nice and you feel better about yourself. There's good health. Right, so here's, here's, a, here's a bit, you know, you don't, plan a, you don't plan a big dinner party, which you know is going to take up days and days of your time, and you're going to have to clean up a lot. You do that, even though it's hard work, because the joy and the fun of having people over to entertain. There's a better example. It's the example that Paul uses himself here, which I'm going to read this verse, and then I'm going to get into the details later. Don't worry about the details. Just look at the example. Down at verse uh, uh, 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I'll get to what that means in just a second. But childbirth is the best example of this, and I don't want to be flippant. I realize that as a guy, I'm not going to experience this. I don't want to act like it's something I know all about. I don't. I, I do know that it's almost universally accepted that the most painful thing your body can endure is giving birth to a child. It, the most painful thing your body can endure is simultaneously, at the same time, not two separate events, uh, sorry, Katie, is uh, simultaneously the most happy, ha happy thing in your entire life. The most painful thing you will ever endure is simultaneously the happiest thing in your entire life. Paul uses this analogy for a reason, because suffering leads to glory. Why is this? Because that's the secret at the heart of the universe. 
the darkest, most painful, bleakest, most wicked moment in the history of humanity, the crucifixion of the God-man, is at the same time the brightest, happiest, most righteous, holiest, and most positive event in the history of humanity. And we as Christians should see our suffering in that light. Not as like we need to get out of this, although you should try to get out of suffering if you're in there, do what steps you need to take, but see that as God's, or, God's plan to bring about glory in Jesus Christ. Okay. That's the last few thickets that we have to hack our way through. And now we're out on that rock outcropping. I'm about to show you the vista that Paul demonstrates here. Now, the vista is one that, that since I've been talking about this, since I've learned about it for the past 10 years, I will frequently find that Christians, I will say what I'm about to say from Paul, and Christians will look at me and be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool. And then immediately, I'll talk to them like the next day, and they will have reverted back to like not what Paul's saying, but something else. All right. What is it that they revert back to? Let me just say this. We have a problem in American Christianity. It's maybe not the worst problem in the world, although it comes along with uh, symptoms that are big problems. And the problem that we have, it's over 100 years old easily, is that American Christianity is obsessed with going to heaven when you die. Like, we, we, we talk about it all the time. We, when I was a kid, you know, that's all. That's, uh, go through the Lutheran service book. Don't touch it now because we're trying to keep them clean. But if you go through there, like almost every hymn that's in there will have a verse about, you know, someday you'll escape this veil of sorrows and go to heaven when you die. I, I grew up on my mom would read us the Little Visits with God, that CPH book. Every single little devotional in there has something to do with, hey, Johnny, you need to, uh, you know, if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's all about going to heaven when you die. And it, when you start seriously reading the Bible for the first time, you, you will be struck by the fact that the Bible never talks about going to heaven when you die. Completely uninterested in going to heaven when you die. Paul, Paul obliquely mentions it a couple times. One time he says something like, uh, um, to be absent with the, from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus never teaches about it. Never. Instead, what does the Bible teach about your future destiny? It doesn't say you're going to go to heaven when you die. Although Paul says enough that we can kind of get hints that when your body dies, you know, and it gets buried or gets cremated or whatever happens to your body. Your soul will go up to be with Jesus and be safe with him. But that's a whole lot of guesswork just from a few things that Paul says. Instead, the main message of the Bible about your future destiny, this vista of glory that Paul's about to show you, goes like this. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, reveal, for, for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, the environment... The squirrels, the mountains, the rivers, the air, trees, whatever. It's waiting for Jesus to return so that the children of God, me and you, we know that from verses 15 through 17, that the children of God get revealed. Well, why is it waiting for that? Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't willingly get subjected to futility. Adam and Eve sinned and it caused mountains to crumble and rivers to get polluted, and squirrels to die, and trees to die. The creation didn't do anything wrong to deserve it. But when Adam and Eve fell, God subjected creation along with us. So that now you and I die. You and I have broken relationships. Creation itself is also liable to corruption. Everything falls apart. God did this. Verse 20. 
because of him who subjected it. Why did God do it? Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its corruption and obtain to this glorious freedom that you and I as children of God obtain to when Jesus returns. Do you see what he's saying? Here's the payout. God's not interested in taking you to heaven when you die, although he'll do it. It's kind of plan B. It wasn't designed to be like that. You weren't designed to be ripped apart body and soul. That's what happened because we fell. God's design for you is to be whole, body and soul, and he is going to do that someday. Not just the creation, though. Also, look at this. I actually just said this. Let me give you the verse for it now. Uh, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now, that's very vivid. Creation itself is waiting, like a woman who's giving birth to a baby, waiting for God to, to deliver it so that it can be whole and happy and have the children of God living in it again. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It does not say you are waiting for God to come and take your soul up to heaven so it can float around with Jesus someday with the other disembodied souls who have died and gone on before. It's saying that you are waiting, you and I are waiting for God to fix our bodies, to repair our bodies and to repair this creation. All right, that's the goal. Where does Paul get this from? Three things in Scripture. Let me do this fast. There are three things in the story of Scripture where he gets it from. One's at the beginning, one's at the end, and one's in the middle. The thing at the beginning is creation. When God created Adam and Eve, did he create them as spirits floating around with him? You know, and then they rebelled, and so he gave them these bad bodies as prisons and threw them down to the prison house of earth. And now salvation is, there are some religions who teach us, salvation, this is an Eastern religion thing, and unfortunately some versions of um, Christianity, Salvation is a matter of escaping the prison house of this natural world and the prison house of your body so that your soul can be once again free to float around with Jesus. It's not what happened. God created Adam and Eve as bodies and souls to live on the physical world. That's God's plan. Paul assumes if that's the way God wants it to be, and if redemption means that God wins, that God gets back every square inch of property that was lost to him when, he, when Adam and Eve fell, that our bodies are going to be a part of that. That's the beginning. The end is these frequent prophecies throughout the Bible where prophets look into the future and see new creation. Isaiah 65 and 66 is a big famous one where Isaiah says, you've heard of uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the new heavens and the earth. Well, I'm looking into the future and I see the new heavens and the new earth where God comes and gets rid of all wars and all violence and all broken relationships, and there's universal peace and justice. John, almost the very, very end of the Bible, John picks up on this, and in his vision, sees the same thing. Check this out, uh, Revelation 21. John says, I saw the new creation. I saw the new heaven and the new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's, that's heaven, where God lives. Now, in the old schema that I grew up in, salvation is me going to heaven when I die. Me going up to the sky. But look at the vision that John has. It's completely the opposite. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, not saying, behold, I'm here to reap up all the Christians and take them to heaven. But actually the opposite. Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them. 
And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that's God, said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is not saying, okay, sin was too bad. Let's just blow the whole thing up, get our people out of there, and then we'll start over somewhere else. No, God actually says, I'm going to win. Satan doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Violence doesn't win. Evil doesn't win. I'm going to win. I'm going to clean up the whole thing and restore it. That's your destiny. That's the beginning. That's the end. For Paul, the linchpin is what stands in the middle. The resurrection of Jesus. The fact that God himself didn't say, okay, humans, I need to take you out of those bodies and take you up here to heaven with me. But God himself said, I'm going to take a body and come down there with you. God himself is eternally human. He will always, from now on, eternally is the wrong word because there's a starting point to it that first Christmas. But from now on, God himself will have a body. Jesus will be human. He will be physical. He has chosen not to get rid of our bodies, not to get rid of creation, but to redeem our bodies and redeem creation. That's your destiny. Now, so what's the payout for this? Like, let, me just, let me just say this. I, let me ask you a personal question. Don't you, don't, don't you crave this? Like when I was a kid and I would hear the talk about going to heaven when you die, I knew I was supposed to like it. And I'm not saying it's better than the alternative, right? But it's kind of weird. Like the notion of like not having a body, of not being able to play golf, of not being able to eat food, of floating around in the clouds. That was just weird to me. I knew that it was, I was supposed to like it. I was super relieved when I studied Scripture and found out that God actually teaches that my body is going to be redeemed. And what this means is that the things, more on this in just a second, the thing, your body is actually eternally valuable. Your relationships, eternally valuable. The way you care for and live in your environment, eternally valuable. All right. Let's move on from there to the third thing. That's the, that's the second thing. The second thing is the reality of hope, which is the new creation. The third thing is how we access this. The anticipation of this glory is what the word that Paul uses here is hope. Look at the last two verses of our reading. For in this hope we were saved, in the hope that Jesus would return and fix our bodies and our creation. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? If you're experiencing this now, Paul's saying, but you're not experiencing this now because then it wouldn't be hope. You, there's a gap between you and new creation. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, the name of this gap is, theologians call it the already not yet. Let me give you an illustration. I read to you verse 15. I should have put it in your bulletin. Let me read it to you again. Verse 15 says this. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as children of God. You have been adopted by Jesus Christ. Those of you who believe in Jesus, you've been adopted by Jesus Christ as his children. But then look at verse 23. Paul says this, last line, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as his children. So which, which is it, Paul? Is it verse 15, we've been adopted? Or is it verse 23, we're waiting for the adoption? And the answer for Paul is yes. It's both of these things. You've already been adopted, but you've not yet been completely adopted. You've already been made a member of the new creation, but you're not yet experiencing the full glories of that new creation. Jesus has already risen from the dead, and so the resurrection power of Jesus is coursing through your bodies and through your souls, even right now. But you haven't yet, because he hasn't returned, 
we aren't yet completely experiencing this. And so what we have is two things. We don't have this like, well, gee, I hope things turn out well. We have this, since we are already adopted, we're already in Jesus, we have a guarantee that it's going to happen. And that's what hope means in the Bible. It's not this like, oh, gee, you know, I hope I get something good for lunch. It's, I know something good is going to happen, and I have all kinds of positive feelings about it, and I look forward to it, and I'm chasing it down. That's what hope is in the Bible. You are in Christ, but Jesus hasn't returned, and so it's not completely fixed yet. Think of it like this. All right, it's, it's like this. You remember when you meet that person that you're going to marry, and like you're in love, and you aren't yet experiencing the full experience of married life and intimate companionship 24-7, but you're already starting to experience it. It's, you already, you, you, you taste, you're tasting the flavor of it already. You're starting to feel it. It's like, um, another example, it's like when you have your first child, if, if you remember this, uh, like you, found it, you find out that you're pregnant and you are not yet experiencing the full joy of like taking care of that kid and conversations with the kid and even the joys of the hardships that go along with parenting. But you're already starting to. It's, it's good. It's as good as done. The, the, it's guaranteed that you are going to have a child. It's there in your future. It's like walking through a house that you're thinking about buying and you realize when you're in that house that you're completely in love with this house and you are going to buy it. Now, you haven't moved your furniture in yet. You, know, you haven't brought the silverware in. You haven't decided who's going to get what room. But you already are in that moment as you walk through with the realtor. You, you already are experiencing the joy of that house. That's what this is like. You already are experiencing new creation. You are walking in the Spirit. You have the resurrection power of Jesus flowing through you right now. It is guaranteed that the payout will happen. That's what hope is. Two things. Just give me 30 seconds. Two applications from this and then I'll let you go. One's passive and one's active. So first of all, the passive one is this last line here. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The new creation is guaranteed. You can afford now to be patient. You don't have to stress out about your bad health. You don't have to stress out about your finances. You don't have to stress out about the bad traffic. You don't have to stress out about, like, are my kids okay? You don't have to stress out about, like, you don't even have to stress out about, like, I have this sin that I'm struggling with and I just can't get over it. Patience. God is bringing it about. It's guaranteed. You are new creation people. You will experience all the glories of a repaired environment and repaired relationship and a repaired soul. It's guaranteed to you. Relax. Here's the active one, though. You can go after it. Your life has value. Your relationship with your kids, with your loved ones, with your best friends, it's eternal. They will last in a new creation. You are already working on those relationships now. Go after it. Mow your yard. Play golf. Eat delicious food. Ask God to help you obey his word better. Work for it because it all has, in fact, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians when Paul says everything you do due to the glory of God because it has eternal value, he's actually talking about eating. Even your eating has eternal value because food has eternal value. God created food. He's going to redeem it someday. Your stomach has eternal value. God created your stomach. He's going to redeem it someday. When you, stand at, when you stand at a funeral and you look down at the body in the casket, you don't tell yourself, 
you should no longer, this is the way, I, this is what I have to tell myself when I was a kid growing up. I have to say, well, I'm not going to see that person again. I'm going to close the lid of that casket and it's gone. But I'll get to see him in heaven if that's possible. Do spirits have eyes? Like, how do spirits see stuff? It just felt weird to me. Like, you're going you're gonna to see that person. Actually, here's what you tell yourself because of this. That body that we're about to bury has intrinsic value. That body is going to be raised from the dead. That exact same body. The body that's sitting in that pew right now with you is the body that you will have forever and ever. It'll be fixed. It'll be redeemed. It'll be glorified. It'll be made powerful in Jesus Christ. It will end up owning the entire universe. But it is that, ex- that, is, it is that exact same body. That's the vista that Paul's laying out for us today. That's your destiny. Be patient. Wait for it because God will bring it to you. But go after it and work for it because God will bring it to you. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for uh, loving us and for being good to us. And thank you for this promise of new creation. Thanks for not leaving us out in the cold. Thanks for not blowing us up. But thanks for vowing and also buying into, by becoming a human, buying into rescuing us, rescuing our relationships with each other and with you, rescuing our environment, and promising to fix all things one day and to make all things new. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and then we'll continue in prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Uh, Again, we thank you for your commitment to our bodies through your body. We thank you for uh, sending your son Jesus to die and rise from the dead so that we will rise from the dead. We've already risen from the dead in him. And it's guaranteed that our bodies will someday rise from the dead. And so we praise you for that and we look forward to it. And uh, help us to set that as the as the target for everything we do throughout our lives, this new creation life in your son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would uh, protect and be with St. James. Uh, This whole coronavirus thing has been good for all of us in some ways and bad for all of us in some ways. And uh, the drifting apart of relationships or the strain that relationships have undergone by being forced to be uh, virtual, um, we trust you that you're sovereign for this, and we know you're in charge, but we pray that there would come a day when we can all be back together again soon in fellowship around your throne with each other, all in the same room, and see each other and laugh with each other and weep with each other and pray for each other and hold each other up and be held up by each other. Father, we pray that you would bring that uh, moment, uh, that, that uh, great moment it will be, that you bring that moment to us soon. Lord, in your mercy. And also along with that, God, just get rid of the coronavirus and get rid of all diseases and all sicknesses and all brokenness. And as as always, I guess what we're praying for is for your son Jesus to come and make all things new so that we can be with each other without fear of death, with no sickness, with no sorrow, with no dying, complete peace, complete harmony with each other, working together in your renewed kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these things because you allow us to, because you invite us to, because you welcome us in your Son, Jesus Christ, into your throne room as your daughters and as your sons, as your very own children. And so we come into you in the name of your Son, Jesus, our brother, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Oh. 